0: Uh, that's right um, okay before we get started today a thought experiment for you you were hanging out here at the table one evening and uh, and so I know you don't even have to like imagine very far away like just right where you are you're hanging out at the table you're sitting there Betty has started making delicious food so you're sitting there enjoying the food sitting there eating this delicious cupcake and all of a sudden you look up And this guy walks in, and he looks familiar. In fact, you're pretty sure it's Jesus. Um, You can't fully tell because you know the mask and everything, but like he's he's the only guy with like a robe and sandals on, so you're pretty sure that's him, right? And you like kind of like walk up to him, and sure enough, right there on the tag, Alyssa wrote it in her beautiful cursive: Jesus, right there on the tag. You're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, you're here. What what are you doing here? This is about, first of all, welcome to the table. I'm so glad you're here, right? This is really cool. Um, we just ran out of wine back there. No, just kidding. Um, uh, that's what happens when you go off script, okay? Don't, okay. Um, so you're like, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Hey, what are you doing here? Like, what, why are you here? Why are you at Stillwater? And why are you at the table? And And Jesus says to you, well, actually, like, Heard it was a wellness day today. Heard everyone was was just kind of hanging out. So actually, I came here to hang out with one of your friends, actually. I've been hanging out with your friend all day. So pause real quick, all right? In your mind, when Jesus says, I came to hang out with one of your friends, who is it? Like, uh, Like in that moment, are you here? Jesus came to town specifically to hang out with one of your friends. If you had to guess in that moment before Jesus told you, if you had to guess, who would it be? Okay, take, uh, take a minute, turn to the person next to you and tell them who it would be and if you want to throw in why. This is, it would be this person and this is why Jesus would come hang out with them. Go. All right, wrap it up there. Okay, so, I just want to know who told Madison something there and what it was. Um, okay, so tonight we are going to tell, uh, we're going to read the story of a very unlikely disciple. Um, maybe, maybe, I mean, would be in the running for the least likely disciple in this part of the earth uh, this day, someone who had uh, very little business probably being around Jesus. In fact, if you were to go and ask this person's friends uh, if she had any, which more than likely she didn't, but if she had friends and you were to go ask her friends, the Messiah comes to town, who's the first house He's going to. They, they would list off 50 names before they'd even consider her. She'd never be even on, on, that, on their radar as somebody that Jesus would come and talk to, that the Messiah would want to spend their time with. And yet, when Jesus walks into a new village on this one specific day, she is at the top of his list. She's the first person that he goes to, and not only that, I can't prove this. We don't know this for sure, but there's a really good chance that this is the very first person that Jesus reveals his identity to. Jesus spends a lot of his time, actually, in his ministry not telling people that he's the Messiah because there was so much confusion around that term and what the Messiah was supposed to do. Jesus didn't want to get people too confused early on about what's going on, but he actually tells this person. Tells her who he is when he doesn't tell a whole lot of other people. And on the surface, that would appear to have been a pretty bad idea on Jesus' part. Of all the people, to share this news with at the first, to start with her, would appear to be a pretty bad choice. Uh, we're in John 4, as Randy mentioned, uh, starting in verse 1. We're going to read some kind of large chunks because it's long, the, the chapter it's a little bit longer. So we're going to read this here through. It says, uh, uh, verse 1 When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. So Jesus is doing ministry, teaching, doing some things down in the region of Judea. And the Pharisees, who kind of considered their job to protect the faith and to make sure no crazy new teachers show up, they've been honed, on, honed in on John the Baptist for a while because John has been drawing crowds. And so they've been, they've had their eyes on him. They're making sure he's not getting too far out of line. And then they find out that a lot of John's followers have started moving to Jesus, which is what John told them to do. And when that happens, the focus comes in on Jesus. And so Jesus chooses to leave Judea and to make his way back up to Galilee at this time. It says in verse 4, he had to travel through Samaria. That's technically not true. In fact, most Jewish people, most good Jewish people at that time, if they were traveling from Judea to Samaria, they did not, or to Galilee, they would not go through Samaria. There was an alternate route, actually. Um, Do we have our map here? All right, I'm gonna nerd out with a laser here, okay? So uh, get ready. Okay, so there's, if you look at Palestine during the time of Jesus, it's a little bit small, but hopefully you can see. So there's three main regions here. Right here is Judea, okay? This is where Jerusalem sits, and that's kind of the heart of, uh, that's the heart of. Judaism. That's where the temple is. That's where all that's where a lot of the religious leaders sit. But then you also have up north this region here, which is Galilee. This is where Jesus is from, and this is where he does most of his ministry, though he does, like in chapter two, come down here from time to time. Um, in between them you have Samaria. And if a good and faithful Jewish person was in Judea and needed to make their way up to Galilee, they had a route that they always took. You go from Jerusalem, and then you travel northeast over to Jericho, and then from Jericho, there's a road that runs right up along the Jordan River here. As you get about up to here, there would be a plain that would open up going right up kind of west and north into the region of Galilee. And that's the route that everybody took whenever they wanted to go from one place to another. Now, quick history lesson. I'm going to try to do this in three minutes, all right? Three minutes or less, we'll see if we can do it. This area right here, Samaria... About 700 years before Jesus, the Assyrian Empire, which was the major world power at the time, came and attacked and conquered this area. And when it conquered this area, it had this policy in order to make sure that revolutions and rebellions didn't start, it would take a lot of people out of a place that it conquered and it would move them to another place in its empire where it had conquered people. And then it would take people from different parts of the empire and they would shuffle them there because if you can keep all these different peoples and language groups um, all kind of shuffled around... It's harder to organize and so 700 years earlier a number of people get removed from this area of Israel and they get taken into exile and then a number of people from other parts of the Empire like Babylon and Persia and Syria up here and all these they get moved down into this region. Now, that part of Israel had not been very faithful to God, even at this time. There was already idol worship that was beginning to mix in to their practices during this time. But once new people come in, over time, the Israelite people here begin to intermarry with the other Gentile people that come in. And not only do they begin to intermarry with them, but they begin to practice the things they practice. They begin to worship the false gods that those people worship. Now, by the time Jesus gets there, by the time Jesus comes, um, they have mostly kind of cleared up the whole idolatry thing. They've pushed that aside. They're not worshiping God and all these other gods. They're mostly just worshiping God. But there's some significant differences. They reject the temple in Jerusalem where God had placed his temple, the house where sacrifices were made, where you came to worship, they rejected that and said, this isn't his temple, this isn't his holy place. I got to get closer because I can't see very well. Right here, there you go. Mount Gerizim, there's a mount right outside of a town called Shechem. And this is where they say God wanted his holy temple to be. So they built a temple right here. And they say, this is where you worship. Not only that, they reject most of the Old Testament scriptures. They reject Everything in the Old Testament except for the first five books. Those are the only ones they'll hold to. And so the Jewish people here in Judea and up in Galilee came to view these people, these Samaritans, as basically half-breed heretics. They're not pure-blooded Jewish people. They're intermixed and intermarried with all these other detestable people. And not only that, but they hold on to a number of beliefs that are not true. They will not worship in the right place. If they can, we wouldn't let them anyway. But they set up this false temple where they want to worship God. It's not there by the time Jesus is there, and this is why. Because there was major tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritan people. Always tension. But many times that would bubble up into violence. And in 127 BC, uh, the Jewish people traveled to Shechem, traveled to Mount Gerizim, and they raised Shechem to the ground. And then they went and destroyed their temple too. Now, the Samaritans would still worship there. They still had their sacrifices, but they had no temple. And so there was no love lost between these two people. The Samaritans were considered an unclean people. You don't drink from vessels that Samaritans drink from. You don't eat with Samaritans. And so any good Jewish person would make their way around that region, but Jesus does not. This is what it tells us in verses 7 through 8. He's sitting there at this well at noon, and it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. And then John puts a little comment in, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That is an understatement. Yes, Jews do not associate with Samaritans, but um, what Jesus is doing here has her a little bit taken back and I would even say shocked because Jesus is breaking a series of taboos in these 30 seconds here. All right? First of all, she is a Samaritan and he is a Jew, so he's not supposed to be hanging around with her. Second, She is a woman and he is a single man. And single men did not interact with women in any way. Married men barely talked to their wives in public in front of people, let alone a single man go and talk to some other woman. That did not happen. That was scandalous. Uh, Lastly, she has a reputation for being sexually promiscuous and immoral, and he is supposed to be a holy man. He is a rabbi, a teacher of the law, and a rabbi would not be caught dead in a situation like this. Now, that last one, that reputation, we'll get to in just a little bit, but the fact that she's there at noon tells us something see gathering water was was a in a culture where women were somewhat socially isolated uh, gathering water at the well was actually kind of a social occasion it was a moment it was it was something that women did in their society that was kind of their job their task and so they often that was kind of a time to socialize and to be around other women and to talk and hang out but this was almost always done early in the morning or in the evening so that they could avoid the heat of the day Very few people would ever go out to get water in the middle of the day at noon, and the fact that she's here hints at something, which is probably that she doesn't want to be around all the other women, or more likely, all the other women don't want to be around her that there's too much gossiping when she's around, that she's been ostracized um, from the community because of her reputation. And as I said, any other rabbi in this moment would just ignore her, pretend like she's not there. He would get up. He would leave. But Jesus isn't any other rabbi. And in fact, she is the very reason that he's here. Now, there's this statement that John makes in John 3 where he talks about this idea that Jesus is the light of the world in John three nineteen through 20. And he says that the light has shone in the darkness... And there's two different ways that people go with that. Some people, after sitting in darkness all their lives, they will actually come into the light as it shines because they want to be there when Jesus shines on them. But many people, John say, they run away from the light and try to get as far away from it as they can because that light exposes their wickedness and their sin. So, what we're about to see in this story is an unfolding of John 3 19 through 20. We're going to see when Jesus comes and this woman has an encounter with him, it's going to get a little bit confusing. And it's going to get a little bit more than a little bit uncomfortable. And the question and the drama of this story hangs on this question right here Will she stay in the light? Or is she going to bail? Is she going to run away so that her deeds will not be exposed? Verse 10 says this, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. Now, there's this pattern that unfolds a lot in the book of John where Jesus will take an idea, a metaphor, an object, and he'll use it as an illustration, but the people that he's talking to don't get that it's an illustration. It happened last week in John 3 when Jesus talks to Nicodemus about how you have to be born again, and Nicodemus is like, I don't know how I'm going to climb back in my mom's tummy, that's kind of weird, and this happens a lot where he, where where. He says something, and they don't seem to get it. So here he talks about water. She does not quite grasp it. Um, the image that Jesus is giving, this idea of living water, living water means like running water, running from, uh, uh, water that comes from a stream or a river, this is a little bit lost on us. Um, in a day and age and in a place uh, where we have access to water anywhere and at any time, we kind of miss out. On the the point of all this Uh, They live in a place where they Don't necessarily it's not taken for Granted that you have water anywhere Anytime they're right on the edge of a desert In a semi-arid climate And, And they know what it is to be Without they know what happens when it Doesn't rain for a few months they know That they're dead without it That they're lost without it And so what Jesus is saying here Tim Keller puts it like this that he is essentially Saying I have something for you That is as basic and necessary to you spiritually as water is to you physically, something without, uh, something without which you are absolutely lost. And he says this to her, and she goes, where are you going to get this? Like, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Jacob is one of the patriarchs, one of the forefathers of the country of Israel. Um, and, and she says, you're not greater than him. He's the one who gave us this well. Now, the answer there is not, she's not seriously inquiring. She's asking that Um, with with skepticism in her voice. You, You mean to tell me you're like Jacob found and started this well. You mean to tell me you've got something better than him, that you did better than him. You know somewhere around here that he couldn't find. And so she's skeptical of him as she asks this question. And then verse 13 says, Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, but whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. "'In fact, the water I will give him "'will become a well of water "'springing up in him for eternal life. "'Sir,' the woman said to him, "'give me this water so I won't get thirsty "'and come here to draw water. "'Go call your husband,' he told her, "'and come back here.' "'I don't have a husband,' she answered. "'You have correctly said I don't have a husband,' "'Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, "'and the man you now have is not your husband.' What you have said is true. Now, this seems like a weirdly sharp turn in the middle of this conversation. They're talking about water. They're talking about the well. They're talking about drink. Hey, I've got water for you. I've got living water. It will spring up. She's like, all right, well, fine, give me this water. And he just kind of shifts. Go get your husband. And that seems odd, and it seems random that Jesus would do that here. What's he trying to get at here? But, but I think, actually, it's not random. I think there's a connection between him offering her living water that satisfies and the husbands that he's bringing up to her. Again, uh, this is how Keller think- this is what Tim Keller thinks he's saying. He's, he's saying, "In order for you to understand this living water that I'm offering, you have to first understand where you've been trying to find it. And in this woman, what it appears is that she's been running after satisfaction, life, joy. She's been running after that in relationships. We don't know her exact story. We don't know why she's been divorced five times, which would be a huge amount in any culture. We don't know why. Um, It could be that she has gone from husband to husband and never found any of them able to satisfy her. Or it could be that husbands have gone to her and not found her satisfying and one after another has left or, or more than likely some kind of mix of the two of those things. Um, but what, what Jesus seems to be getting as, do you understand that what you've been chasing is not satisfying you? You understand that what you've been running after is not doing what you're wanting it to do and now in this moment it has moved from a confusing conversation for her to an awkward one. Now it's gotten personal, and here we have to see how is she going to respond. What is she going to do in this moment? Verse 19, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Now, two options as to what she's doing here when she kind of shifts gears herself from Uh, from her husband's to this debate about where should the temple be. Um, There's two things. One is she's throwing up a smoke screen, and she doesn't want to talk. She doesn't want to get personal. She doesn't want to deal with the stuff that Jesus brought up to her. So let's just go to the age-old debate between Jews and Samaritans. Hey, where do you think we should be worshiping? Let's get into this. That, That could be what's happening. That's what I've usually thought was happening. There's another thing that might be happening in this moment, though. She might be saying, as he points out to her, her sin that, that she's been involved in, he, she might be saying to him, yeah, and what do you want me to do about it? Okay, fine, you called me on it. I'm a sinful person. Where should I go to get that taken care of? Because you would tell me that I've got to go to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice on behalf of my sins, and yet you wouldn't even let me go there if I tried. The Jewish people wouldn't allow me into the temple. So what do you want me to do about it? I could go to Gerizim, but I don't think that's going to satisfy you. Now, I don't know what exactly is going on, whether it's the first or the second, but either way, Jesus' response answers both of those things. Verse 21, Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says, regardless of what she's doing with this question, he says, just so you know, that question is obsolete doesn't matter anymore. That debate is over. You see, two chapters earlier, this is another area where Jesus uses kind of a phrase and they don't understand it. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus refers to his own body as the temple. That is, what he's saying is, Jerusalem is not the place where man meets God. And Mount Gerizim is not the place where man meets God. And then he points that at to himself and says, this is the place where human beings encounter God. And then he says this, that the hour is coming. Now, if you remember, we talked about this. In the book of John, when Jesus uses the phrase the hour, it's usually referring to the hour of his death. The hour is coming, and it's now upon us when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. What he's getting at is pretty soon you're going to be able to say this. We, the people of God, that's the place where God meets man because of the living water that I'm going to place inside of you. When I die for your sins, the Holy Spirit himself will reside inside of you. So there will be no use for debates as to whether we go to Jerusalem or Gerizim or Mecca or anywhere else because the place where people meet God is right there in the middle of their chest when the Holy Spirit himself comes and dwells inside of them is what Jesus is getting at in this moment. He's not saying to her though, by the way, so then therefore it doesn't matter. You worship however suits you, whatever you want to do, in whatever way, to whoever. He says, in spirit and in truth. So you will worship the true God as he is revealed to you in the scripture and confirmed to you by the Holy Spirit that I will place into you. That is who you will worship and that is how you will worship him. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I the one speaking to you am he. And so it appears that she gives one last attempted stiff arm to hold Jesus at arm's length. When he throws out this whole spirit and truth, and hey, don't worry about Jerusalem and Gerizim, she goes, ah, you know, who are we to know? None of us can really know. One of these days, the Messiah will come. He'll kind of clear it up. Well, we, we can figure it out then. And Jesus says, it's already figured out. You're looking at him. I standing to you, am he. Actually, the way it's worded in the the Greek is a little bit off. It's like the one standing here in front of you, I am. That's what he says. If, If you know your Old Testament, you recognize kind of the sound of that and where that I am comes from. That's what God calls himself, and something in this moment changes her, as we'll see a little bit later on in the story when we get to the second half. But before we do that, I want to ask this question, why her? Why does Jesus choose to meet and reveal himself to her of all people? Back to that thought experiment that I brought before you at the beginning, some of you had a very quick answer. Some of you just knew. I mean, if Jesus showed up, he'd be hanging out with my buddy so-and-so. He'd go hang out with my friend so-and-so, and and this is why, because this person is really spiritual, because this person really loves Jesus, because this person really seeks to obey him. Uh, Some of you may not have had an answer. It may have been harder to think about it, and you were trying to figure out, I really don't know. And I'm guessing there are some of you who might not have known, but you were pretty sure about one thing, that it would be anybody but you that you would be the last person Jesus would show up to see. As a matter of fact, actually, if he did show up, then you would probably make it your aim to kind of slowly move to the other side of the room, to to avoid eye contact with him at any moment. Because if Jesus did come up to you and say, we need to hang out for a little bit. I want to talk. You're pretty afraid that that would get awkward real quick. Maybe it's because... um, Maybe it's because you have lived a life that is very far from him and the way that he would want to live or have you live for a very long time. Um, maybe you've, I don't know, maybe you've wanted very little to do with Jesus. Maybe even in this moment you really wouldn't care that much if he walked in. I uh, Got very little desire to actually want much to do with him. Maybe you know Jesus already. Maybe you've given your life to Jesus. But the truth is you're, you're pretty sure that you've been a bit of an embarrassment to him over the last couple of years or at least quite a bit of a frustration for him. And so you just know in your mind, I don't know who it would be, it just wouldn't be me. Here's the deal, though. Odds are, the more convinced you are that Jesus would never come to you, the more likely it is that you are the one he'd be coming to. The more convinced you are it would never be me, I'm just telling you, that only increases the odds that he would walk in and he'd look at you and come walking over to you. Because throughout the Gospels, repeatedly, these are the kinds of people that Jesus comes to interact with. Do you remember when Alex spoke to us from Matthew 9, and Jesus says at the end, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I did not come for the righteous, but I came for sinners. Jesus isn't saying, by the way, there's a lot of righteous people around here who don't really need me. No, 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 he's saying, I came for the people who are sick, and they know it. And they know that it's going to be awkward. They, they know that it would be a little bit embarrassing. The kind of people who are pretty sure that I would never want to hang out with, those are the people I'm here to hang out with. And just so you know, when Jesus comes to you, and, and he will, even if he doesn't physically walk in this room, Jesus does approach each and every one of us, it, it might get uncomfortable, and that's okay. It might get confusing a little bit, and that's okay. He's not asking you to have it all figured out. He's not only coming to hang out with the people who've got all their crap cleaned up and who've got their life together. When Jesus comes to you, he only asks you these two things. Will you recognize the gift and the one who offers it to you? Will you recognize the grace and the life and the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives? and Will you recognize that it comes only from him? And then secondly this, will you ask him for a drink? Will you ask him, instead of running after all the other things, will you look to him to give you what he came to bring to you? We'll take a little bit of a break, and then we're going to jump into the rest of this text and look at one more encounter here. All right? Two minutes. Okay, so normally what we do on this night, as you know, most of you, is we take... The first section, and we walk step-by-step through the text, and then in the second section, we'll take a theme or an idea out of that text and spend some time kind of applying it to our lives. Uh, But tonight, we're doing things a little bit differently because there's actually two encounters in this text, two encounters with Jesus. And so we did the first one there, and then we're going to do less. We'll spend a little less time on this one. uh, But we're going to cover this second encounter that takes place uh, here in verse 27 and down. So Jesus has been talking to this woman here at the well. And then it says, chapter 4, verse 27, Just then his disciples arrived, and they were amazed that he was talking with the woman. Yet no one said, What do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman left her water jar, went into town, and told the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they left town and made their way to him. Uh, So the woman is so deeply affected by this encounter with Jesus as something is spoken there that that, uh, causes the light bulb to come on, and she's overwhelmed so much so she leaves her water jar there, the very reason that she came for, and she takes off running into town to begin telling people about this Jesus that she just met out there. And then at that moment, she is replaced by the disciples. They come upon the scene. They actually see them talking. They had been in town getting food for Jesus. They see them talking talking and it says no one said anything though, implying basically they they wanted to. This was weird. This was awkward. Jesus shouldn't be talking to this woman here, but they all kind of kept their mouth shut. Um, And and all of us needs to hear the words that Jesus gives to the woman. Everyone in this room needs to hear whether, whether you're with the woman and you have not yet encountered Jesus or you have not yet accepted the gift that he has brought to you, or maybe you already have. Either way, you may just need to be reminded of what it is that Jesus comes to bring to you, and that no matter who you are, that Jesus comes to bring living water to people who have no business uh, interacting with him, that he comes for those very people. Um, so, All of us need to hear that, but there are a lot of us in here who need to hear uh, Jesus' words to the disciples. And so I want you to dial in with me here on the things that he says to them, starting in verse 31. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Well, listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for the harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. So, What you have here is Jesus, once again, uses a word as a metaphor. I have food that you don't know about. But just like the woman, and just like Nicodemus, they are confused by it, and they don't know what's going on. They're like, but he... He had food this whole time. He sent us into town to get food, and you had food, Jesus? What, what the heck, man? And so they can't figure out what's happening in this moment. And then Jesus tells them, no, I have food that you don't know about. To do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work is my food. What, what Jesus is saying here in this moment is that there is something that to him is more satisfying than bread. Something that is more satisfying than dinner, and that is to finish the work that his father gave him. He does that by bringing people to God, bringing people to the father through his ministry, and then through his sacrifice on the cross. It's interesting what he says here. My food is to finish the work of the one who sent me. Do you remember what Jesus' final words are on the cross right before he dies? It is finished. I did it. I did what I came and This is my food. This is what I came for, and it has been done. And he says, my, my desire, what feeds me is to do the will of the Father. And then he invites them into this, and he says, and I want you to join me in this. You're going to do this with me. He quotes this kind of proverbial saying, I know what you say. Four more months are than the harvest, but listen to what I want to tell you right now. The harvest is upon you. It is time right now. And and when Jesus says harvest, what he's talking about is the harvest of, of eternal life, of people coming to faith in Jesus, putting their faith in the Messiah and being brought to God, like being brought forth out of a field, a crop being brought forth. He says, that's happening now. There are people right out there. They're coming to us after this woman ran out after them. They're coming to us right now, and they are ready to be harvested. They are ready to be brought to Jesus, brought to me, and I am inviting you in on that, The disciples, you see, have encountered Jesus already. They had a moment with him a couple months ago, a couple weeks ago, where they came to see Jesus, at least somewhat, for who he is, and they began to follow him. And now Jesus is tasking them with joining him in the efforts to bring others to him. As people who have been given living water, when Jesus puts the living water of his Holy Spirit in us, we do not hoard that to ourselves. Our job is to bring that water to others, so that they can have it and experience it as well. Um, but here's the truth: it's not always as easy as it looked to be in John four. It doesn't always go quite as, as well. Even if John four is a little bit uncomfortable, it ends up working out in the well uh, in the end. Um, I'll tell you, I have sat at the well with unlikely disciples a number of different times in my life, and I have not seen it go nearly as well as it did for Jesus and this woman here. I remember sitting in the dorm room at Eastern Mediterranean University in Famagusta, Cyprus, on the other side of the world, and I'm talking to my Turkish friend about Jesus, and I'm talking to my Turkish friend about my faith in him because... um, I have been given something by Jesus. And I wanted others to experience. That's the exact reason that I'm in that dorm room. That's the reason that I chose to move to the other side of the world and attend this university that I had never heard of before is because I wanted other people to get to experience what I had experienced in Jesus. And I traveled to the other side of the world, and I uh, gave a year, and I prayed and spent all this time working on this friendship and praying with this friend. And I remember telling him about Jesus and about my connection to Jesus and my relationship and offering this water, this living water, to him. And I remember my friend saying to me something to the effect of, hey, that's great, but the truth is you're an American and so you're Christian. And I'm Turkish and so I'm Muslim. And that's how it is. And I remember in two to three sentences him just dismissing this water that I had traveled to the other side of the world to bring to him and just pushing it aside as though as though all it was was some cultural tradition that I held to. As though he was not able to see that the water Jesus brings is not for Jew or Samaritan, not for American or Turkish, but it's for everyone. And he just kindly, he wasn't rude, kindly just kind of pushed it to the side. I remember sitting in the dining room of my next-door neighbor, Uh, at the end of this last summer and for six years I lived next to this man and and he was a good man. Him and his wife were a good man and a good woman and and praying for them and trying to build a relationship with him and trying to work towards opportunities to be able to talk about Jesus and, and having little bitty bits of things where I could kind of sprinkle in my faith, and finally there came this moment where I got to sit down in his dining room and talk to both he and his wife about Jesus through this weird kind of backward situation that led us there, but I'm sitting there in the dining room, and I finally had the chance to get to talk to him. I've been praying for this, the opportunity's here, and it's not that I expected it to go perfectly. I I knew that it wouldn't. Um, I knew through little conversations that he and I had had, I knew how resistant he was to Christianity and to Jesus. Um, but I think I expected myself to do better in that situation than I did. I remember uh, he would bring up objections and I would stumble my way through an answer and the words were not coming out nearly as eloquently as I had hoped that they were going to come out. And I remember um, walking away from that house that evening and over the next 24 hours just thinking back on that conversation going, why did I, why did I say that like that? Why didn't, I, why didn't I say this? Why couldn't I think of these words in this moment? Why didn't I have the right thing to say in that moment? And I can think of a whole lot of other times where I sat at the well with an unlikely disciple and I didn't say anything. And sometimes I sat at the well with that person for months and and those months turned into years and and I had chances, but I was too afraid. I was too afraid that it would make the relationship awkward. I was too afraid I wouldn't have the right words. And I never said anything. And there are a lot of times when I sit at the well with unlikely disciples and it does not go the way that it's supposed to go. Have you ever experienced that? You know what that's like? To be around people that you, you want them to know what you know. You want them to be able to find what you have found. You want them to be able to experience what you've experienced. This different kind of life that truly satisfies from the inside out. But you don't have the words. Or you feel like you don't have the courage to say anything to them. If that's you, then I want you to hear Jesus' words to his disciples here in this moment. Let's start back again at verse 35. Jesus says, Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. Now catch this, this we haven't read yet. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. He says, I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. What he means is you are going to get to see people come to faith today and you did none of the groundwork in bringing them to that place. You had none of the early hard conversations. You had none of the things that kind of built them. You, you dealt with none of the beginning things. There are others who did that. They did the sowing, and you're going to get to do the reaping here in this moment. Who the others are, we don't fully know. He he could be talking about himself. I laid the groundwork when I had this conversation with this woman. He could be talking about John the Baptist who came and laid the groundwork across the countryside uh, preparing the way for Jesus to come. He could be talking about this woman herself who just ran away from Jesus to go tell everybody about him. But what he's saying is that there are other people who have gone and done these things and now you're going to get to be a part of it. The idea here is this, that when people become disciples, it is not not always, in fact, I would say it is not usually instantaneous, that it can take multiple conversations over a period of time as new truths are slowly understood, as they come to grips with their sin, as they come to grips with their need for living water, as they come to grips with who Jesus is, that the idea of discipleship, of making disciples, that's a process, and I want to show you that real quick. Some of you have seen this before. We've talked about this with some of our student leaders or if you're on our outreach or connection team, we've talked about this, that our goal as uh, the table is we want to give people what we've experienced. We want other people to know what Jesus has come and brought into our lives, to know that living water because it's too good a gift to keep to ourselves. And so we seek to make disciples. And and the process works from left to right here. The truth is that when we come to people, it's not quite as simple as just not a believer, that there are people all along a range of spectrum. And there are some people that you interact with on on an everyday basis who, who are not curious and really don't want anything to do with Jesus or spirituality or faith or anything like that. And then there are Others who have some curiosities, but they really don't know if they want anything to do with it. And then right here is a moment where there are some people who actually encounter Jesus himself, and they move into this new realm that we would call a disciple, someone who actually believes, trusts in, and follows Jesus. You'll notice that all of these circles overlap because there's there's a little bit of a, it's not always like an instant, it's kind of a slow process, although something specific does happen between this when you become a new believer, that you are born again, as we said. And so they move into disciple, and then we have what we call right after that. I have LLLW. That is a lifelong and life wide disciple. Someone who sees Jesus and they let Jesus affect the entire length of their life and they let him affect every aspect of their life. We talk about gospel centered life. That's what this is. Becoming a lifelong disciple. And then last is there are those who become, and actually we are all called to be this, to be disciple makers who are then going back and bringing others along this spectrum with us. This is the idea of the process in discipleship. There's, there's a good good chance that there are people in this room who fit in every one of those circles tonight. I don't know, but my guess is that there's there's a decent chance there's somebody in this room that fits in each and every one of those. Our heart is here at the table, my heart, Scott, Randy, Alex's heart is this, that wherever you sit on the spectrum, we want to walk alongside you to lead you further in the rest of the way. Wherever you are, we want to help you Move further towards the right side of that screen, further into this idea where your whole life belongs to him and you're helping others. And once we are leading you along this path, we also want you to join us in this. We want you to bring the living water to others, but here's the really encouraging part when I look at something like this and when I hear what Jesus says to you is this, it isn't all on you. When you go to your campus, when you go to your friends, when you go to your family members, it is not all on you to get them from the far left to the far right side. That's not your job. That's not your task. You are not asked to be the hero. You are not asked to be the expert. You are asked to be a link in the chain because Jesus says this to his disciples. Others have done their part. Now it's time for you to do yours. I'm just asking you to be a link in the chain wherever you encounter a person, wherever you meet a person, wherever they are on this. It is your job to be faithful in being a link in the chain, someone who will point that person towards Jesus. Someone who will help them see Jesus through your love for them, the way you live and act, and through your words as you speak about Jesus. As you talk about what he's done in your life, there's a verse that actually captures this whole idea beautifully. Um, the Corinthian church was founded by the Apostle Paul, but there's this other guy that came in after Paul named Apollos, who became teaching, who was a teacher, and the Corinthians had a big debate over which one was kind of their real leader. Who was the one who really brought us to Jesus? Who was the one who really helped us grow up? And Paul says, you're looking at this all wrong. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, if you want to go there on the slide. It says this, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? He says, they're just servants through whom you believed, and each has the role that the Lord has given. Paul says, I planted, so I planted the seed. Apollos came and he watered, but God gave the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What we see in this passage is that no matter where someone is in the process, it is ultimately God who is leading them along. I tell you that we want to walk alongside you in this process. Yes, we want to do that, but we know that it's the Holy Spirit. It is God himself who helps a person move through the process of discipleship. There are seventeen to 18,000 students on the campus of OSU who are not involved in any sort of faith group. 17 to 18,000 students, many of them who do not know Jesus, who maybe grew up in church, maybe didn't, maybe heard about him, maybe didn't, but all kinds of them who do not know and who are not connected in any way. And we feel a burden for them to know him. And we uh, want you to feel that burden as well. But we know that that's overwhelming, or at least it would be, if we believed that the task was falling on us. Paul says it doesn't. Paul says you got a role. You have a role to play in this. You might be planting the seed. You might be tilling the soil. You might be watering. You have a role to play. But it is ultimately God who will give the growth. He is the one who saves. He is the one who opens hearts. He is the one who draws people toward him. God, though, uses us to be a part of it. So my encouragement to you is that you would choose to be a link in the chain." That whoever it is around you that needs to know Jesus, that you would love them in a way and that you would, when the opportunity is there, speak truth in a way that lets them move a little bit further along. Wherever you are on this spectrum tonight, I don't know if you're at the beginning that you don't even care, or maybe you're a little bit curious, or maybe you're somewhere in this process of growing in Jesus and discipling him. Here's what I want for you. I hope that you will drink deeply from the satisfying water that Jesus gives and that once you've done that, you won't hold it to yourself, but that you will then go and bring that water to others. Let me pray, and it will be done. Dear God, I am I'm confessing to you now that I am not great at this. I'm confessing to you now that even though you give me living water in Jesus, that there are times I turn my eyes to other things. And try to get satisfied in those. Uh, Forgive me, Lord, and remind me. Remind us in here that Jesus is the one who satisfies. And I pray, Lord, that you would put in us a burden and a desire and a passion to go then bring that living water to others. To bring them to Jesus because Jesus is the one who gives it. Give us opportunities, Lord. Give us moments at a well with someone. Give us opportunities to be links in the chain. And I pray for us that you would help us to be bold, that you would help us to be faithful, that you would help us to be obedient in doing our part for the harvest. We ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.